0: My ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither or or some, come hither all such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear, of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them, and for those who thusly need inform me, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So, so cautioned, audience, come with me to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 8 Misne Lican Long ago, before the Normans and the Vikings and the Saxons came to the Island of the Mighty, before Wilhelm Normano and Ivor bey Lausi, there lived a king named Herler. Herler ruled in what we now call Herefordshire, and often rode with his warband down the old Roman road to go hunting in the woods not far from his hall, by the banks of the river Wye. Now, Herler and his men were out riding in a celebratory mood, for a marriage had been arranged for him to a beautiful princess, the daughter of the king of Elmet. As they had been riding all morning, they paused a while in a clearing to let the horses and hounds drink from a stream. Above them, they heard the sound of geese barking in the sky. One of the men laughed and said that Aron, the king of the underworld, was out a-hunting. Then, as if summoned, came the clip-plopping of hooves, and a curious man appeared. He was tall, taller than any of the men, with a great red beard, a giant of a man he was dressed finely with golden arm-rings and twisted silver torques, "'and he hailed Herla as if they were of equal rank. "'The oddest thing about this man was not his great height, "'nor his riding alone by the Y, "'but that he was mounted upon a huge goat the size of a war-horse, "'with a sleek white beard finely combed and curving horns capped with silver. "'Now, Herla was a king well-educated in courtly manners, "'and he hailed the man in return and invited him to ride with them for it was the day before his wedding, and he was in a good mood. The man on the goat laughed a hearty barely laugh, and urged his mount to the party, bringing it up beside Hale's horse. The goat stank, despite its brushed coat, fine saddle, and ornamented harness, but Hale held his breath and said nothing of it. The two rode together for a while, head of the party of now less jocular men, and spoke of the weather and the game thereabouts, and what was going on in the world beyond Hale's kingdom. The man on the goat said little about himself, only made occasional references to his own kingdom. Heller did not pry, for he did not care to learn too much about the stranger. At length, they reached the edge of the woods, and the man on the goat thanked Heller for the company, and said he must be away now, but he wished him the best for his wedding, at which Heller thanked him in return, and said that all the lords of his land and those passing through were welcome at his wedding, and the man should come if he was at leisure to do so. The man on the goat's large face cracked in a smile, and he said he would return the next day with all of his warband to feast and toast Heller, on the understanding that Heller and his court would in turn come to his wedding the next year. As the man rode away on his goat, Hela breathed a sigh of relief, and worried whether what he had done was wise. The day of Hela's marriage dawned and the preparations were being made. A great feast, with beef and mushroom stew, fatted geese, swans, dozens of pigs, salmon and trout from the rivers, wine from the south, huge barrels of ale, and a great roasted boar with the tusks still in place as the centrepiece. Hela wore his finest, heaviest golden torques, and the bride was arrayed in fine imported cloth from the east. When the bride and groom were about to toast their guests, there was a clamouring and a resounding of haunts from outside the hall, and in came the red-headed king, with a host of strange folk all shapes and sizes, little dwarves and lumbering giants, storm hags and red-eyed shadows, and willowy women with long hair, carrying many gifts of gold and jewels and fine foods and fabrics. The men and women in the hall turned to Hela, who, with a deep breath, welcomed the strange host, and called the red-headed king to sit by his side and toast with him, which he did. The festivities carried on into the night. Just before the moon reached its highest point and shone through the smoke hole of the hall, the red-headed king leaned across to Hela, laughing, and praised his hospitality, saying he looked forward to welcoming him to his hall and returning it in a year's time at his wedding. Everyone celebrated all night long and fell asleep by the fires, and in the morning the red-headed king and his people had all vanished away. A year passed, and Hela's wealth grew, and his kingdom prospered, as if there was some blessing on the land that made the crops grow high from the earth below. On the day of the anniversary of Hela's marriage, a watery woman with fish peeking out of her hair appeared at the door of his hall, and said she had come to guide the king and his people to the wedding of his friend. Hela, and the bravest of his warband, saddled up their horses and followed the woman. She led them at a slow trot down to the wine along its banks until they came upon a high cliff that Hela had never seen before, even though it must surely be in his kingdom for they had not ridden far enough to have left it. The woman struck the cliff face nine times, and it split apart, revealing a passage lit by lamps wide enough for two horses to walk abreast, leading downwards. Hela and his people followed her into the cliff, and emerged in an ancient forest under an unknown sky. They passed through the forest and came out into fields such as Hela might have seen in his own lands. They came at last to a great palace made of black stone and when they entered they found it peopled by the same strange folk as before. There in the great hall the red-headed king was waiting at the high table at the feast of his own wedding, to a mysterious pale queen swathed in robes of shadows and mist. Hela was invited up to sit with the king and queen, and feasted heartily in his turn. After the celebrations which went on for three whole days in the realm beyond the cliff, Hela said that he and his folk must go, lest his people think he had vanished forever. The red-headed king gave him gold arm-rings and jewels and other fine gifts, Presented him with a little hunting hound puppy, telling him that when he left the underground kingdom, none of his party should dismount from their horse until the dog had leapt down. Hela and his folk mounted up, and he sat the little dog on his saddle horn, and the party headed out through the cliffs which opened before them and revealed a path out into the world they knew. The king rode at the head of the party, and when they emerged back into Hela's kingdom, he felt that something was wrong. The hills in the distance were certainly those of his kingdom. The sun shone as it always did, but he knew something was not right, for there is a secret and sacred bond between the land and its king. Unnerved, he rode into a nearby field, where an elderly shepherd sat, whittling and watching over his flock. Hela addressed the man, asking for news of his queen. The old man responded in a strangely accented voice, saying he could barely understand Hela's words, for he was a Saxon, and Hela was a Briton, and he had thought all the Britons had been driven into the West two hundred years before and no more came to these parts. He recalled, however, a legend his grandmother had told him while he sat upon her knee, of a long-ago queen of the Britons by that name. Her husband had been spirited away by the king of the underworld and never returned. With his heart sinking, Hela thanked the old man and spurred his horse over to his companions to give them the terrible news. Several of his men dismounted their horses in surprise, upon which, to his horror, they immediately crumbled to dust. Hela warned his remaining companions to stay in their saddles, and called them to ride on, until the dog jumped down. He looked at the little dog in his saddle, but it remained in its seat, looking onwards. And so, the story tells us, Hela and his men remain eternal wanderers, riding forever, waiting for the dog to alight. But we have idled long enough in the past, so let us return to the present. To another sort of mysterious underground realm, the back office of the Pantaloon Society, where Joe and Jen have returned recently from their trip to Cheshire. Oh, there you both are. Splendid. Are you both alright? You're not quite exhausted. It was one of the extra weird ones this time, Veronica. Oh dear, I I am sorry. Was anyone hurt? No, everyone's okay, but we had to leave pretty quick. Did you break this cursed antique mask and you weren't too happy about it? That's a shame. But I suppose it had to be done. It is an unfortunate fact of our profession, slash calling, that a lot of cursed objects are also incidentally very old and very valuable and frequently not appropriately insured. Jen? Um... Is there something else? Awkwardly, and aware of Joe's eyes pouring into them, Jen reached into her bag and extracted the wooden baton, the bat, that you may remember from the previous episode, dear listener. Unless, of course, you are one of those curious persons who subverts the dominant narrative paradigm and are starting the story at episode 8. In which case, the baton that Jen produced was exactly the length of their forearm from the rest of the elbow, made of pale yellowish oak and extremely smooth, as if it had been handled repeatedly for many years and then carefully waxed and polished for many more. Dr. Harrington blinked and looked at her, and then at the bat, and then back at her. I don't understand. Look, I didn't mean to take it from the property room. It must have fallen into my bag somehow. Oh, I see. No, that's fine. Uh, sometimes the objects in the properties room have odd um, properties. It's not unheard of for them to go off on their own. It came in handy, actually. I hit the cast mask with it to break it. Perhaps it knew it was needed then. Jolly good. Do we know anything more about this thing? Look... I want to make sure it's not going to explode or kiss everything or something. All right, leave it with me, and I'll see what I can find out about it. It wasn't in one of the cases or surrounded with any kind of protective ward, was it? No, just on a stand with a little label. It's probably harmless then. Pop it on the table, and I'll look it up in the records later. Reluctantly, Chen put the bat on down on the old manager's desk that Doctor Harrington used as her workspace. To do so felt wrong, unfair somehow as if they were handing over something that was theirs, that belonged to them, that should be in their hands and nobody else's. They ignored the feeling and tried to focus on Dr. Harrington's briefing. Any news on the clown killer? No further developments on that front, I'm afraid. No more murders? Or no leads? Neither, so mixed pressing, really. The matter I contacted you about is something different, quite unpleasant, but on the other hand, maybe entirely mundane. Dr. Harrington produced her tablet and, Pulled up on the screen the photo of a man who looked to be in his mid-thirties. He was laughing in the photo and had a friendly smile and blue eyes. Seems like a pleasant fellow, doesn't he? Well, he isn't. This is Benjamin Gledhill. Self-employed, um, let's just say self-employed. Apparently he does everything from clowning to financing to festival management. Badly, or possibly criminally. Uh, he's left a trail of fraud and deception across the entertainment sector. Gigs and festivals that never happen, artists never paid, and so on. It seems he has angered one too many or the wrong people, though, because he has fallen off the radar entirely. Vanished without a trace. Why is this a case of relevance to the Pantaloon Society, you may ask? Why is this a case of relevance to the Pantaloon Society, Veronica? I'm glad asked you asked, Joe. My informant, one of Mr. Gledhill's recent victims, a gentleman who contacted the Society about him, ventured the opinion that he is supernaturally good at fooling people. He described it as the gift of the gab. <laughs> All right, Mace, whatever you need to tell yourself. Yes, I did also wonder if this was a case of someone thinking themselves so clever it would take an inhumanly clever person to fool them. But as you know, it is for us to investigate these things when they reported to us. And there has been many a time when something that sounded preposterous turned out to be true. Remember the haunted clown car? The possessed penguin? I have found one possible lead. Apparently Mr. Gladhill has a sister who is an employee of the Crown State. She works as a horticulturalist in Windsor Great Park. If he has fled anywhere until the heat dies down, it's likely there. Windsor's not too far. I'll drive. Ooh, can we go to Legoland after? A trip down the M4 out of London brought our heroes to the outskirts of the leafy little town of Windsor to find the cottage where Samantha Gledhill lived. As they approached, Joe noticed that Jen seemed distracted. Her gaze darted about, and she seemed not to notice when he addressed her. Jen, you are right. Can you hear that? Hear what? Horses? No, nothing like that. I need to get more sleep. I'm hearing things. When they arrived at the old single-story tiled cottage, the door was answered by a short woman with close-cropped hair. Jen and Joe informed her they were looking for Miss Gladhill, and she chuckled and said it was Mrs. Gladhill and Sam was her wife, and then yelled back into the house for her to come to the door. A very long woman emerged, tanned and weather-beaten and wiry, with her long hair scraped back into a ponytail. The sort of person who clearly spent most of her life outdoors in all weathers. Hiya, I'm Jen, this is Joe. Uh, we're looking for our friend Ben. We're really worried about him. We're all supposed to be working this festival together, but he never showed up. I said he was from Windsor, so we came looking for him. Sam looked Jen up and down, taking in the brightly coloured hoodie and the orange leggings they were wearing today. And then at Joe's sensible workman's shirt... Does he owe you money? I lent him twenty quid once. He's not here. I don't know where he is. Jen's nostrils flared when the woman spoke. She sniffed. (laughs) Something was off. She could smell fear. See it in the way Mrs. Gladhill's hands would not stay still, and her wife kept glancing at her. You're lying. Get lost. (laughs) What's wrong with you? I don't know. I feel weird. Let's go get a coffee somewhere. Meanwhile, back at the Pantanoon Society, Dr. Harrington was deep in the library, rifling through the pages of the Enchiridion on its lectern. The bat rested on a shelf across the room, covered by a cloth and surrounded by a preventative circle of salt and several religious objects. She glanced at the bat and then at the page with the faded sketch she had found. Ah, here we are, Harlequin's bat, reputed to be the original bat wielded by Tristano Martinelli, died 1630. The Dominus Arlequinorum. Martinelli is credited with first using the name Harlequin for the character of the second zanni for the Parisian Carnival of 1584. The character wore a colorful costume of linen patches and a hairtail on his cap, along with a leather half mask and Martinelli's mustache and pointed beard. He chose the name of a giant, club-wielding devil from French folklore, Ilegant, who was reputed to roam the countryside during the Christmas season, accompanied by loud, animal-faced demons, tormenting monks chasing evildoers to hell. Hmm. A club-wielding devil, eh? Quite risky, taking the name of such a creature. i better tell Joe. Back in Windsor, Joe and Jen had obtained coffee, or in Jen's case a hot chocolate with extra marshmallows, and then decided to stake out the Gladhill household. They lurked in Joe's car two streets over with a view of the little house, sipping their drinks and trying not to look too obvious. They waited for several hours until the drinks were mere residue at the bottom of their cardboard cups. Eventually, Sam Gladhill emerged from her front door and got into her own car to drive away, of which Joe frantically started his own, waited until another one had passed and then began to follow her. Their quarry drove down the road out of the town, into Windsor Great Park, turned right at the salmon pink gatehouse building, and continued down into the woods before pulling up. Joe drove past her, what he considered a decent distance down the road to avoid suspicion, and found a gate to pull up next to as well. Unfortunately, by the time Joe and Jen had got out and reached the other car, it was empty. What do we do now? Hmm. Oh, look, there's a path. She must have gone down that. Aye, we can follow her, but but what yeah yeah we can follow her this way Jen what are you slow down the day was starting to wear on and the afternoon sun slanted through the trees as Jen pelted through the undergrowth followed by Joe puffing behind suddenly they felt good like the pressure that had been building up in their head all day was being released their quarry was ahead of them somewhere down the path they could feel it in their bones and smell it in the wind Come on, Joe! Slow down! Jen! Right, the the Joe's voice faded into the distance as Jen plunged on. Her mind was clear. There was nothing except the hunt. Her companions were coming. She could feel them behind, catching up. The hunt. The hunt was coming to join her in the pursuit. Her hooves behind her became louder, thundering like the blood in her veins, and then she was swept up in the whirlwind. Innocent of what was pursuing her, but not of other things, deep within the woods, Sam Gledhill cautiously approached an old birdwatcher's hide, half covered in fallen leaves and ivy and old growth. She quietly called her brother's name, and he emerged, with days of beard growth and lank hair framing his innocent blue eyes. Ben, you need to move on. Someone's come looking for you. They said they were working on a festival with you? Across the glade, a dark figure lurked in the shadow of an ancient and wide trunked oak, looking down at something in their hand. They glanced up to where the Gladhill siblings were talking, agitatedly. The needle under the glass and the compass in their hand pointed towards the two, wavering. The figure moved a little, trying to work out which of them it was homing in on. Ben paced away from his sister across the glade, and the point of the needle followed him. The figure's attention followed him too. Woo-hoo! Then, out of the woods came a thundering of hooves and a baying of hounds. The dark figure froze. The hunt plunged past the oak where hid towards the Gled hills, in a trail of smoke and shadows. Sam stumbled and fell to the floor, but Ben swore and ran. The hunt scented the guild of an evildoer and rounded on its new prey. It howled on through the glade and pursued him deeper into the woods. Where... where did... Sam, mouth still open in astonishment, pointed through the woods. (sighs) Thanks. The hunt went after the terrified man with Jen in the lead, or something like Jen, something wearing Jen's face and form, and wrapped in a mantle of shadow and mounted upon a horse, snorting fire and leaving hoofprints of flame behind. The man was still young and strong, his feet had the wings of fear, And so for now, he was still ahead, but that could not last for long. Sobbing, he raced ahead of them into a patch of bracken, which, alas for Ben Gledhill, was concealing a fallen log, upon which he snagged his foot and fell to the floor. He struggled back to his feet, but the hunt was on him in a trice, and he screamed in terror. What the... what the hell? Seeing Joe, the hunts master turned their head towards him, and he for all his size and strength shrank back. The hunt milled around their prey, temporarily sated. "'Jen!' He did not know what had happened to her, but he knew he could not leave her to ride away with the hunt. He'd faced down terrible things before, and he would do so again. Although, honestly, this terrible thing was definitely in the top ten of terrible things he'd come across, probably in the top five. "'Jen, come back! You don't belong with them!' But the hunt's master only regarded him coldly from atop their flaming mount outlined against the evening light filtering through the trees. Joe reached out with his present, as he did when he tried to find what would make someone laugh. He brushed against something dark and terrible and almost recoiled from it, but steeled himself and pressed past it, looking for the tiny bright core of jen that remained. Within that fading light, beset on all sides by swirling smoke, he found something twined gently around the core of Jen's heart. He pulled at the thread, drawing it out, It was not a joke or a story it was something else his voice wavering with barely contained terror he spoke the words that came to him by the voice in the collies when the pole star danceth, by the voice on the summits the dead feet know by the soft wet cry when the heat star troubleth by the planning and the moaning of the sigh of the rainbows by the four white winds of the world whose father the golden sun is whose mother the wheeling moon is, the north and the south and the east and the west, by the four good winds of the world that man knoweth, that one dreadeth, that Lou blesseth. By the voice of the hollow where the worm dwelleth, by the voice of the hollow where the sea-wave stars now, by the voice of the hollow that the sun hath not seen yet, by the three dark winds of the world, the chill dull breath of the grave. The breath from the depths of the sea, the breath of tomorrow, by the white and dark winds of the world, the four and the three that are seven, that man knoweth, that one dreadeth, that Lou blesseth. We are well on mountain moorland and unlock, on face and lock, and river on shore on shallow on sea Be Be well on a mountain moorland and and logan and river on shore on shallow on sea Joe? Jen, come here. Come down, come back. Joe? How did you know about my favourite record? It just came to me. Come on, we need to get away. Can we go to Legoland now? Whenever you like! Just... come on!" Joe pulled the dazed Jen away into the woods. The hunt, leaderless, milled around a little more. The shadows lengthened and reached out towards where Jen had been, but then pulled away and shrank back. Then the dark horses and the fell hounds and the half-seen figures in dark armor bunched together and rode off through the canopy, into the evening sky. Presently, a dark figure detached from a nearby ash and moved through the growing shadows. The normal shadows of an English woodland as the sun set now, and inspected the body lying among the bracken. It lay where it had fallen, apparently completely untouched. Empty, soulless eyes stared up into the trees. The figure poked at the body with a foot, then glanced down at the compass in its hand, which was aimlessly spinning. Then the figure turned, and walked away. The Pantaloon Society is a Cytochrome Here production by Lou Sutcliffe, AM Pronouns, distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. This episode uses sounds from freesound.org. For full accreditation, content warnings and transcripts, please see the show notes. To be kept up to date on the show, please do follow on Twitter, at Pantaloonson. Farewell, dear audience, and thank you for listening.